think really Toronto is kind of coming to its own in terms of a creative city. Uh, it was crazy to me that um, there wasn't a, a strong community newspaper. So that was that was the the, the, the impetus for for starting our paper. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell. This week I'm going to give you a non-standard introduction because this is kind of a non-standard interview. This week I talked to Dave Bedini, a, a musician from Canada who started the West End Phoenix, which is a, a community newspaper in Toronto. This interview came to us via our Western New York correspondent, our Western New York producer, Amber Healy. She's a, she's a huge music fan and a huge fan and booster of all things Canadian. She heard about Dave's story and thought this would be a great podcast for us. And it, it turned out to be a really fun interview. I wanted to give this introduction because the audio is going to sound a little different because uh, we conducted the interview while Dave was driving a car. So you'll hear back in the background, you hear some noise. And in the podcasting game, we like to call that atmosphere. So there's a lot of atmosphere in this interview, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. So enjoy my interview with Dave Bedini. Dave Bedini wears many hats. A Canadian musician, he's one of the founding members of the rock band, The Reostatics, and also plays with Bedini Band. A longtime feature writer, he's the author of 13 books on subjects ranging from music to hockey and to the art of writing. Dave is also the publisher of the West End Phoenix, a local broadsheet newspaper that's been covering Toronto's West End since October 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Oh, it's great to be on it. Thank you. So which came first, your interest in music or writing? I probably would have um, been writing for a little bit longer than I've been playing guitar just because, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you, with the guitar or any instrument, you're sort of, you know, wrestling with the apparatus of that instrument. And certainly in the case of the guitar, you know, when you're young and small and sort of tender fingered, it's, uh, it's a little bit tough to kind of rise above the awkwardness and, and difficulty and strength required really to kind of get around on it. Whereas writing, all you gotta do is hold a pencil or a pen. And so I was able to, um, I just sort of took to writing a little bit earlier, but but really I've been sort of doing both things at the same time for a long time. And I actually had my first my first ever piece of writing was published in Toronto Sun in a section called the Young Sun um, when I was 11 years old, 1974. So you know I like to I like to think that sort of that gave me the taste of a public life in terms of you know art. And, really the greatest day of my life when they sent me a free Toronto Sun t-shirt for having that poem published and that, that might have even have started you know kick-started you know writing lyrics and that sort of thing but the two arts have been married pretty much my entire life so the first thing that you published was a poem it was okay so did the crossover start not too long ago after that that you started like doing journalism I was 11 years old when my the poem was published so <laughs> it would have taken a few years after that no I mean it was kind of the classic route a little bit for me we had a fanzine that was published out of our high school that I would have written a few things for and then after that you know would have just started submitting you know music writing to some of the you know music papers uh, magazines you know op magazine in the states and certainly a couple of the local rock magazines in Toronto and in Canada and then sort of not seriously until until much later when um, 
I was actually asked to write a column for the Toronto Star. At around the same time, I had I had stuff published in the Village Voice, and that was mostly sports related. The editor at the time with was Jeff Z. Klein, who I really just I, I just sent him some stuff, just out of the blue, some writing, and uh, we became friends. It turned out that Jeff was originally from Buffalo. His uh, grandmother had grown up on the street in Toronto where I live, so and, and we've become friends since. But so as I was having stuff published in The Voice, which was huge for me because I, you know I love that paper so much, and, and a lot of what the West End Phoenix does is kind of is tailored around what The Voice did. So that was a great thrill for me. So at the same time I was doing that, I was also writing for our city newspaper, writing a column once a week, and that's kind of where it all sort of uh, it kickstarted for me in terms of journalism, I suppose. And, and newspapers and newsprint and around uh, at that time the Rio Statics released a record called Whale Music which is sort of our most famous record and is considered you know it makes those top 10 Canadian albums of all time lists and whatnot for what that's worth but um, it was kind of a nice kind of blossoming I think of, of kind of the ideas I had about art and writing and music uh, around that time so um, yeah that's kind of where it all sort of came together in the, in the early 90s I would say. So, I mean, we've talked to music writers before on our podcast. You're sort of an interesting position. You're somebody who's a musician and also a journalist who writes about music, but lots of other other things. You know, how do these sort of two artistic, and I'm going to call journalism in this context, artistic, you know, platforms, how do they sort of work together for you? Well, I should say to start, really, I don't think anyone ever, would ever confuse me with being a journalist. Um, and I have too much respect <laughs> for journalists to ever actually call myself one. I was a columnist for The Star and then later was a columnist for The National Post. And I published a tour diary of our of our winter, Rheostatic's winter tour with a Tragically Hip playing hockey rinks for the first time. Um, we did that tour in 96 and I published a tour diary in the Toronto Star. And that's what led to my first book, which was called On a Cold Road which was about about touring Canada in the wintertime. And as a backdrop, it, it, through my narrative in that book, I went and I interviewed musicians from the 60s and 70s in Canada who did that path across the country for the first time. So I sort of talked to the pioneers and I threaded their narrative in, in with my narrative. And But I think, you know, with music, it, people ask me how, you know, how that sort of fed the writing. And I always say that, um, you know, tour, especially when you're touring, Really, you're only working, you know, 90 minutes, 120 minutes a night. And if you're the opening band, you're only working 40 minutes a night. So there's a lot of time in between. And, you know, some musicians will, you know, fill that time doing doing other things. I filled that time writing for the most part. So one sort of really supported the other. And, and I must say, I probably never would have had my first book published by Random House, McClellan and Stewart, and I would never have had my column if it wasn't for the success of the band. So those two things really supported. But I think mostly it was that, you know, occupying that time to kind of stay off, stave off the madness. I should say, though, replacing one kind of madness with another madness, I think. But I would come back from tours with, you know, notebooks filled, filled with writing and stuff. So I think that's kind of where, how those two, two art forms uh, are joined or became joined. Does the same part of the brain sort of work in both of these areas, or, or do you feel like there's kind of a distinction between each? Yeah, I think there's a distinction. There's obviously a lot of different kind of classifications of writing, but and maybe this is less true of journalism, but you know, when you're playing in a band, you're, it's very social for the most part, and, and it's loud. When you're writing, you're very much in your own head. It's very kind of a, it's a very solitary 
gesture in a lot of cases. Perfect days for me would have been, you know, and they still are, you know, like a four hour rehearsal in a, you know, in a rehearsal space with, you know, crashing cymbals and, you know, and, and juiced up amps and, and a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, sort of very socially um, ignited creativity, you know, doing that in the afternoon and then coming home and spending a bit of, a bit of time in my room, you know, burying myself in the work. I think that's a great balance. It, the balance works for me and growing up, you're always sort of told to kind of, you know, pick a career or, or figure out what you want to do or who you want to be. And your guidance counselor would give you those forms and you'd fill them out and they would tell you, well, you're going to be a police officer or you're going to be a farmer or whatever. And I never kind of believed in that. I always thought that, you know, if you had many interests, you could potentially try to do different things. And and certainly in terms of, you know, the balance, that, that creative life, playing music and writing sort of serve two different masters that I think are equally as vital in terms of creativity. So they're, they really are, they're quite different in terms of, you know, one's uh, intellectual structure, I suppose. So you've been a writer, you've been a musician, and now you're a newspaper publisher. What made you decide to do that? My last book is called Midnight Light. It came out in the fall, and it was about my experiences in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, which, um, for listeners who don't know, is that kind of neglected band at the top of, of your North American maps, among Canada's um, northernmost regions. Yellowknife is a city that is quite young. The Dene, the indigenous Dene, have been there for tens of thousands of years, but it wasn't incorporated as, as a city until the early 1970s. I went there, I was invited for a literary festival there. I had never gone, it's at the 63rd parallel. But the town itself is actually, is, is quite, well, it was thriving the mining, when the mining, mining industry was a little bit um, you know, more active, but it's still quite an interesting, lively, thriving place. And when I, when I went to Yellowknife, I discovered their newspaper, which is called the Yellowknifer, which has um, been around for about 35, 40 years. I was astonished in 2016, 2015, to find a, a capital city in Canada where the newspaper was still, you know, the um, was still vital and healthy and thriving. So I fell in love with this. Um, it's a tabloid, and I fell in love with it. And, I, and one of the things I fell in love, in love with it was the fact that people still read the paper to find out about, you know, news in their town. And, you know, the internet kind of sucks up north. There's not a lot of fiber optic cable, so there's not a lot of connectivity that way, so it still is the newspaper. When I was thinking about writing my next book, I was talking to my publisher, and they suggested, or we both came up with the idea that writing a book about the north would be interesting. And then I told them about Yellowknife, and I thought, well, a great way of getting to know the north and a great way of getting to know the, certainly the city in short order would be working as a reporter. So I called the Yellowknifer and I told them who I was and what I was interested in doing. And I, I said I'd like to come and work for the Yellowknifer for a summer and see what it was like. And they gave me the perfect answer. Bruce Valpy, the managing editor, asked me, why would you want to do that? So, you know, I, I told him that why I wanted to do it. And he said, well, if you want to come, you can work here, which is generally the way they kind of operate anyways. It's a first stop for a lot of J, J school students, which is still an important thing, as you know, in, in journalism, having those small places where people can find their voice and, and learn how to become a, a reporter. So I went up there and I, and I, and I worked f with them for about five months. As it turned out, uh, the narrative of this book is um, the reporter that I became friends with was this fellow named John McFadden, 
who was a longtime broadcast journalist in Toronto who burned every bridge he had over the course of his career. And the, the, his last resort in terms of working was the Yellowknifer. And while he was there, he kind of held the foundations of that city of, up to a higher standard. He sort of brought a, brought a big city sense of journalism to the north. And so, as you can imagine, imagine he um, got into trouble with uh, the RCMP and the Greater Northwest Territories government and people within the mining industry because he probed and he probed and he probed. He was arrested for obstructing a police investigation on the Canada Day weekend of 2016. And as a result, I ended up spending another year and a half going back and forth to Yellowknife to cover the trial. That's a long way of explaining the fact that I, f I fell in love with making a newspaper while I was up there. And when I came back to Toronto, I, I looked around and, and saw, I sort of knew this um, somewhere in the back of my mind, but I saw that all the community newspapers had been bought by Land, which is the Toronto Parent Company, and basically eviscerated them and, and drawn out all of the um, content. And sort of, you know, they're glorified flyers really now, or advertising supplements. There's no content. You know, Toronto being the city that it is, and it being, you know, a wonderfully, I think really the Toronto is kind of coming to its own terms of a creative city it was crazy to me that um, there wasn't a, a strong community newspaper so that was the impetus for for starting our paper so how would you describe the editorial mission of the west end phoenix well sort of the creative framework of it before i, I kind of get to editorial and i will but one of the great things about the west end of toronto which is a catchment of about three hundred thousand, where we are is the fact that at, at one point, over the course, I would say, over the 90s and early into the 2000s, it seemed as if every novelist, poet, playwright, journalist, musician had basically moved there. And, and one of the reasons they moved to the West End was because housing prices were relatively cheap. There were a lot of relatively neglected neighborhoods, you know, you know, city residential neighborhoods, but quiet neighborhoods. So the artists came, and, and when, when we looked around, we realized we had... You know, Booker, Booker Prize winning authors like Michael Andonje and Margaret Atwood, you know, living within a few blocks of each other and a few, block, a few blocks of us. You know, Griffin Prize winning poets like Ken Babstock were there and, and uh, Michael Healy, who's a great Canadian playwright. So we had this incredible sort of raw matter and we thought, well, what if we appeal to them to get them to write about, you know, their local butcher shop or write about that, you know, mechanic at the top of the street, you know, or write about their alleyway. So, so we appealed to them on a purely local level. So the idea was to kind of dignify, I suppose, the neighborhood or tell the stories of the neighborhood in a way that had never been told in a community press before. So that was kind of the cre creative point of view or creative idea behind the paper. Editorially, you know, we want to tell the stories that, you know, matter to the people who live in the community. We want to be able to probe, you know, housing, education, police, certainly development every page of our newspaper could be about you know development and the city the, the west end is changing so much because it's such a thriving place you know towers are starting to go up and condo developers are moving in the idea is to real is sort of ground it has become real ground level reporting fused with long creative literary essays about where we live yeah that seems like a, a sort of a typical alternative press model that you're operating in Yes, I would say it was. It's an alternative press model. However, it's not necessarily arts and culture focused. If that, if that makes any sense, a lot of the alternative press will be about that band that's coming through, or that art exhibition that's happening, or 
record reviews, album reviews. We don't do any of that because we're on a four-week cycle and we're a monthly paper. So we can't really write about that band that's coming through town. It's not really arts and culture oriented, if that, if that makes sense. But, you know, I, I'm happy to be called, you know, to, to be classified as sort of alternative journalism to a point. But um, I also do think the stories have to be, have to have a little bit longer a shadow than the kind of stuff that generally appears, and certainly in the alternative weeklies in our, in our city, of which there are a few. So why was it important to to have a print edition? I mean, there's something you certainly could do online. I'd been to that party before where, you know, I'd had a, web, you know, a few websites, I'd have several blogs, and, you know, everybody has their elbows high. It's really quite, quite crowded in that chamber. We were the first, you know, the first new newspaper started in Canada in 2017. We have the lane to ourselves. That's one of the reasons. It's a counterintuitive journalistic entity. That's that's one of the reasons we did that. We also felt that, you know, there was a value in people paying for something that they could hold in their hands. You can't home deliver a website either, and we do that, and that's part of the charm of the paper. And also, we love newsprint. You know, the paper's 30 inches wide. My friend said it's more like a blanket than a newspaper. It's very, very big. And, and again, we just thought we would do something that, you know, sort of recapture something that we've been losing in our world. And, um, and we love newsprint and we love the way it feels. We love the way it smells. We love the way it prints. Photographers and illustrators love it because their, their images can be up to 15 inches across and, and, you know, they can be represented quite boldly as opposed to something that you simply look at on your phone. So in that way, it's a bit of a gift to the people who contribute. They get a chance to see their stuff represented that way. And we're also hopelessly romantic, too. So that had something to do with it. Yeah, I, 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 had the opportunity, I haven't had the opportunity to actually hold the paper and look at it. You know, I've been to your website. You know, something you, you talked about, the types of stories you do, I thought they really kind of were appealing. You had, you know, you were talking about schools and development, but also, you know, you had people who were talking about, like, sort of giving tours of their kitchen and talking about, you know, how they prepare meals. There's sort of an artistic and, and photographic quality to it as well just you know i don't know who your staff photographer is or maybe you use several people there's incredible work you know capturing people in, in their natural environment you know black and white photos it's really kind of powerful you know i, I can certainly see the appeal of, of you know having it in that print medium they're certainly powerful online the person that's responsible largely for that um certainly visually and photograph photographically is jelani morgan who's our photo editor and has been um, from the beginning. You know, I think with Jelani, he was really just waiting for a chance to work in that capacity after having been a photographer solely for many years. You know, as you may or may not, not know, there are very few opportunities for racialized photo editors on our continent, certainly in Canada and, Canada and the United States. He's the, Jelani's the only racialized photo editor in Canada. So he was just really, you know, just waiting for the opportunity as a result you know, he's brought so many incredible photographers to us who, again, are also, um, you know, looking for that opportunity, looking for that chance to show their work. And, you know, with, with our kitchen series, you're right, you know, we want those photographs to be, you know, the ones that you clip out and, 
and magnet magnet to your your fridge we want them to be beautiful we want to show them you know we want to show the kitchen we want to show the backyard we want to show the front yard we want to show that you know space between the houses the alleyways the laneways we want to show them with a certain sort of depth you know and, and a certain beauty because all I think neighborhoods are beautiful and and those who know the neighborhoods best are those who live in them and our artists live in them and our photographers live in them so they're able to kind of pull that out I think a little bit but but Jelani's key to the kind of stuff that we publish and um, you know our, our art directors as well Robin Colangelo and Alicia Kobaleski are really embraced the opportunity to lay out you know newspaper lay out newsprint because for most of their realities and their work they've just they've designed online and they've been designing to a screen they really haven't had a chance to design to a broadsheet and that's been really kind of compelling for them which has been which has been fun let's talk about the business model a little bit i assume this is uh advertising and donation based we have no advertising so we are strictly subscription and patron supported and what has been the response have people sort of warmed up to the paper Yes, uh, the idea of the paper was kind of hatched in my backyard and on my birthday, September 11th, 2016. I had uh, about 12 friends around a table and I sort of told them what I was thinking and, you know, sought their counsel. You know, they said, go for it. You know, like any good sort of set of friends, they said, well, if you believe in it, you know, go for it. So I did. But... What I did before we published a single issue was I, I went door to door, I knocked on all the doors of the people in our neighborhoods, and I sold 800 subscriptions before we'd even had a newspaper. So it gave me a sense that there was an appetite for it, that there was a subscription base that would support it. So that's how it was launched. And when we kind of did the math, and for us, in terms of running a business, a lot of this is really new to us too. And we're really learning as we're going and we're, just kind of recalibrating all the time but I had a couple of major donors Margaret Atwood was a major donor of ours in the beginning Penguin Random House was a major donor of ours a friend of mine who's a former lighting director of the band had started a very successful offset printing house and as a result he he prints our newspaper for us for free that's patronized by him and we have an artist residency on the second floor of the Gladstone Hotel in Toronto so we had a lot of really really strong early support and as you know you know you gotta you need a few breaks to kind of go your way so so we certainly had that in the beginning and a lot of that has carried over to, to the second year you know after I talk to you I'll be pretty much on the phone all day or on you know on the computer all day trying to engage new donors and trying to find new donor donors and trying to find patrons and find su supporters we're a non-profit we're, we're ad free and you know we're holding up the literary side and we employ hundreds of artists writers photographers illustrators every year so we're trying to nourish that artistic community so we appeal to people on that level to say nothing of supporting local journalism at, at a really difficult time and you know, you support journalism, you, by supporting journalism, you're holding up the very tenets of democracy, you know, and, and freedom of expression in our country, in our in our province, you know, in our continent at a time when, you know, it's, it's all being wrestled to the ground. So, yeah, so a lot of it is me, you know, trying to be, continuing to be active. 
Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned before, sort of in passing, is this art space. What is what is that, and how does that sort of work into what you're doing? No, it's interesting. It's an artist residency. The Gladstone Hotel is one of the most progressive, inclusive, artistic hubs in the city. There are 37 rooms, so if you're coming through the city, you can stay there. But on the second floor, there's about eight or nine rooms that are used for, you know, artists can, can rent them out to create and, and every year they actually have two major exhibits, major um, art installation events. Uh, one is called uh, Grow Up and another is called Come Up to My Room. They're design-based shows. So even though we would classify our space as kind of an office, it really, they're also art galleries too. And we actually have to, we have to be very kind of nimble because we have to vacate two or three times a year so that artists can move in and do their thing. But you know, we're we're creating art kind of every month too, so we dovetail into what they're they're doing. I, Christina Zeidler um, runs the Gladstone Hotel. I know her from playing hockey with her, and she's been incredibly supportive. We couldn't not exist if it weren't for the Gladstone Hotel. So, and it's also great to be. We'll come out of the office after an editorial meeting and find that there's an entirely new exhibit of photographs on the wall. You know, stuff goes up and down all the time. It's super lively. We love being. Yeah, that sounds like a, a sort of neat approach to uh, to what you're doing. It sort of all seems to fit together. You know, Dave, this, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you. I think what you guys are doing is, is really kind of exciting. This idea of, you know, you know, creating a community paper, creating a, an actual physical paper for people, you know, to serve them, not just sort of go into the digital space, but actually, you know, sort of explore new areas by actually doing things that they're actually kind of old in concept, but are new again, I guess. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're at our website, why not fill out our survey? We're asking readers and listeners of our podcast to share some of the technology, some of the tools they use to do their journalism. We're putting together a journalist resource for a future podcast episode and to have on our website. If you do fill out the survey, we'll reward you by sending you one of our It's All Journalism mugs coffee mugs. What could be better than that? It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Hilly wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.